Welcome to this week's Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Emma Adjiman and Chris Dillow, personal finance writer and economist at Investors Chronicle. Christmas is upon us, a time of year often called Season of Goodwill. But rather than just the possibility of getting a nice present, it seems you might also experience some goodwill as an investor. Emma, can you explain this? That's right, Leonora. And what we're talking about here is a so-called Santa rally. And that's a term for a trend which shows that stock markets tend to pay some of their highest returns in December. OK, um, so does this happen every year in all markets? Um, not necessarily every year, but it does happen pretty consistently. So Schroeder's did some analysis on the FTSE 100 over the last 30 years, and they found that it had risen 83% of the time in December. Not only that, but the size of the gains made in December made it consistently the best month over that 30-year period. And so on average, an December had an annual return of 2.4%. And actually, they found this was replicated in all the sort of world markets. Okay, I mean, that's, um, well, what can I say, Christmas miracle. Do, do we know why this happens? Um, we can imagine there's been lots of different reasons suggested. Um, some people think it's to do with the fact that fund managers are tidying up their portfolios at this time of year before Christmas, closing poor positions and buying into stocks that have already done well in an attempt to boost their final year performance, basically. Um, others think that it could have something to do with the fact that fewer people are transacting around this period. Um, and others point to seasonal investing. OK. Um, Chris, I mean, those sound quite compelling stats. Do you believe in the Santa rally? Well, yes, yes, I do, simply because it, it, it is a fact that December is one of the best months uh, for, for the stock market. It's rivaled by January and, and April, but it is one of the three best. All right. I mean, so, like, why does it happen? Is it a Christmas miracle? Um... Not a miracle. My favourite explanation is that it's part of the Halloween effect, Um, the tendency for stock markets to do better from Halloween to May Day than they do from May Day to Halloween. Now, that, that fact has been attested for pretty much all stock markets throughout history. Um... The idea here is that as the nights draw in in the autumn, we tend to become anxious and depressed. And this tends to depress share prices a little, to a level from which they're quite cheap. The upshot of that is that they tend to rise um, in December and January. Okay. Similarly, as the nights get lighter in the spring, um, people get more cheerful and this tends to bid up prices. Uh, hence, we see um, April being a good month for the market as well. All right. Um, a big question. Does it look like the Santa Valley is happening again this year? Certainly in the FTSE 100. Um, so far this month, it's up by more than 100 points. We haven't seen um, the same thing in, in AIM stocks, um, which have fallen so far this month. And that, that's a little odd, because if sentiment um, improved over Christmas, you'd expect to see it in, in the AIM market as well, and, and we haven't. But, but so, so far, it does seem for mainline stocks that there has been a Santa Valley, yes. Um, can I ask, why, why would you expect to see it in the AIM market too? I mean, I, I don't know a lot about this. My understanding is AIM has performed pretty badly relative to other markets. So is it really surprising for, I don't know, the FTSE 100 maybe to do well and AIM not to do well? 
it, it, it's a mild surprise to the the thing is that aim stocks tend to be more driven by sentiment so that if sentiment improves you'd expect to see aim do well relative to to its bad long-term past and if sentiment deteriorates you would expect to see aim suffer really badly okay and, and that hasn't happened uh, in the last couple of weeks now I, I don't attribute any great great importance to that simply because short run market returns are, 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 are so are so noisy um but but it, it, it is a slight oddity but but only a very slight one okay now emma um, I think, as you and Chris have both said, the evidence for the Santa Valley looks compelling. So should investors trade around it? Um, actually, despite the good evidence, it's probably better not to try and time the rally. Um, firstly, because of all it is a trend, which we've said you know, it happens a lot, there is no guarantee it will happen. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, secondly, investors will need to probably be trading in and out of positions, and that could rack up dealing costs and tax liabilities. And thirdly, also time in the market may give you better returns overall than trying to just buy into December. Mm, Chris, OK, um, that doesn't sound good. Do you think, um, do you agree with Emma? Do you, should investors avoid Santa Claus? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, she's bang right. Um, dealing costs can make a big difference when you're looking at what are only small returns. Okay, thank you, Chris. And you can see Emma's full report on whether to believe in the Santa Valley in this week's magazine and the website. Now, the Santa Valley is very much concerned with the performance of equities. But Emma's been also looking at another area of investment markets and one that's been particularly popular with investors in recent months. Emma, what area of the market is this and why are investors diving into it? Um, We're talking about bonds here, Leonora, and investors have been buying into bonds and fixed income in general in a really big way. Um, There's been a bit of um, confusion potentially as to why they're doing this. It could be because people are a bit worried about equities getting so stretched and so seeing bonds as a good way of diversifying. Okay. Um, I mean, right, they're doing it for diversification. Um, Are there any other reasons? I mean, are bonds, are they really good or something at the moment? Well, it's a really interesting question because despite the fact that investors are really keen on bonds, actually the fixed income environment is starting to turn. And this is because after years of quantitative easing by central banks, which has kept financial conditions really loose, we're starting to see some tightening. So, for example, the US Federal Reserve has just completed its third interest rate rise um, this year. And it's also planning more next year. It's also started to reduce the amount of bonds it buys back each month for its QE programme. And here in the UK, too, we've seen interest rates rise recently for the first time in 10 years. So the era of sort of forced bond buying um, by central banks is starting to end. And that could potentially push bond prices to fall, um, which could lead to capital loss for investors. Okay, I mean, that sounds like quite serious. Now, you obviously identified a few factors um, affecting this, um, like QE. So presumably, this affects some areas of the bond market more than others. Which areas of the bond market are particularly vulnerable? Yeah, that's right. Um, Developed market sovereign bonds, like the UK's gilt market, look especially vulnerable. And that's simply because they've seen prices rise so dramatically because of um, QE and central bank action that we're talking about. 
thing that is of concern at the moment here is that most investors will have some exposure to gilts because traditionally they were thought of as a good way of getting that diversification. But actually, they may not be so low risk as they have been in the past because of this effect of QE. Okay. Now, um, obviously, the stats say that investors at large are piling in, but the supposed investment experts and um, some of the advisors and wealth managers who, who know what they're doing, are they advocating piling in in the face of um, you know all these problems? Um, pretty much every single investment analyst I spoke to was cutting their exposure to fixed income. Um, so, for example, Chelsea Financial Services has cut the fixed income exposure in their cautious portfolios from 40% two years ago to just 5% today. Okay, so um, like you said, they've cut it. They've not totally eliminated it. Like Chelsea's got like 5%. So are there any areas of the bond markets that they do like? Yeah, there are. Um, Two particular examples were emerging market debt. And these include the bonds issued by companies and governments in developing countries like Brazil, Russia, China and India. And one of the main reasons why analysts like this area is because unlike developed market um, debt, these areas are still offering quite high yields of 5 to 6 percent. Another example of an opportunity could be US Treasury inflation protected securities or TIPS for short. And these are assets which will rise in line with inflation and they're looking quite reasonably valued. And actually, that's because the market in the US is not pricing the pickup in US inflation. But quite a few of the analysts I spoke to thought that that could change if we get wage growth, for example, for the US. Okay, so two ways to keep ahead of uh, inflation and interest rates. Um, So like if investors want to get into those areas, um, what would be good funds to do that? For exposure to US tips, you could turn to something like Fidelity Global Inflation Linked Bond. This is a shorter durated fund which taps into the US inflation rates, so it will benefit from any rise in inflation. And for exposure to emerging market debt, you could opt for M&G Emerging Markets Bond Fund, which is run by Claudia Kalich and has had really good performance. So over five years, it has returned 58.4% and it's currently yielding 6%. Okay, um, Chris, um, what's your take on this? Do you think there's trouble ahead for bonds? I would very much hope so. Um, You should regard um, top-grade bonds as being a form of insurance, such that if the economic outlook deteriorates or if risk aversion increases, then we would expect to see bonds do well, and therefore they would help to offset some of your losses on equities. So in that sense, I would hope to see bonds do badly, simply because I, I would hope to see the economic outlook improve and investors become less cautious, uh, and that, that, that would spare trouble for bonds. Now, as for whether that will happen, um, it, 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 it's, a, it's a tough call. But I think investors should regard bonds not as a potential high return in themselves, but as a way of protecting themselves from some types of stock market loss. Not, not all types, but the sort of loss Um, that is associated with deteriorating economic expectations. Okay, so, I mean, is that the only or main purpose for bonds in an investor's portfolio? Not not entirely. Um, There is a case for higher yielding bonds on the basis that history tells us that investors have been overcompensated for taking on credit risk. 
higher yield bonds have over the long term on average done better than they should because investors have have in effect been too averse to credit risk now any returns there are i think a, a reward for taking on other types of risk such as liquidity risk the sort of bond, the bond market um in 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 some corporates can, can become very liquid in a downturn it's also the case that if you do get an economic downturn, then we would expect to see credit spreads widen um, and riskier bonds sell off. Um, but, but as I say, history suggests that they are uh, fairly priced for, for, for their risk. Okay. Now, I think what our discussion has thrown up is that there are different influences affecting the bond market and different types of bonds reacting in different ways to it. So on that I suppose, you know, thinking in those terms, are there any areas of a bond market you would totally avoid? I don't think there's any I would totally avoid. I would just be cautious about the different types of risk. And in fact, I'm not sure I I would regard bonds uh, as an asset class in themselves. Because there's a vast difference between higher grade bonds, you know, gilts and US treasuries on the one hand, and lower-grade bonds on the other, such as um, the higher-yielding emerging market bonds and the higher-yielding corporate bonds. They're very different assets, subject to very different influences. Okay. Now, um, yeah, in bearing that in mind and bearing the current environment, um, are there any areas of the bond market that you think are particularly useful or that you particularly like at the moment in view of all the influences and and, and uses that you've mentioned I, st- I still think there is a modest case for holding guilt simply as insurance against um, disaster in, in, in the stock market. Now, the chances of that disaster materialising are probably low, but it, it's always worth having a bit of insurance against disaster, just as if you, you, you've insured your house against burning down. And bonds, for me, fulfil the same function. You know, in good times, you'll suffer a loss. In bad times, you'll, you'll, you'll get a gain just when you need it. OK. Um, and how would you suggest that um, people get exposure to gilts? There is a case for holding them directly. Um, the, the point there being that if you hold a specific gilt, you are guaranteed a cash flow at a particular point in time when that guilt matures. And for some investors who have got known expenses at a given time in future, say school fees or they want to buy a house when they retire, there is a case for having an asset that matches your future liability. As for bond funds, I would urge investors to pay attention to charges um, and and to minimise those. The case for a bond fund is that it does have that insurance value such that if we do get a sharp correction in the stock market, then we would expect to see um, bond funds that invest in top quality bonds do do well and that that they would pay an an insurance benefit. Okay, Chris, can... um can, can, can small private investors, people like you and me, can they actually 
directly bind to gills because, I mean, the reality is with the vast majority of bonds, you can't invest unless you put in a million plus, which is the reason why most of us use bond funds. Um, with gilts, is that different? It is. You, you, you can buy some gilts through, through brokers, yes. And what would be the minimum investment? Um, it, it varies from broker to broker. Um, but it, but it's not. It's it, it is perfectly feasible. Mm, but what are we talking? Are we talking like ten pounds, a hundred pounds, ten thousand pounds? Oh, oh, I, I, I think the latter is perfectly possible. Right. So um, maybe like a few know, hundred for, pounds for, 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 for the larger individuals' portfolio. Direct holding the gilts isn't um, isn't difficult. Okay. That's that, that, that said, the government has made it more difficult uh, in recent years. It used to allow you to buy gilts from the post office. Right. And for some reason, it stopped. Okay. Well, I think I think it's not really the actual. I think most people are broker, don't they? It's it's the it's the minimum amount because you know yeah. um, most of us don't have a million to stick into whatever a corporate bond. But um, you know, a few hundred. Yeah, maybe we can do that. Okay, thank you, Chris. And uh, you can see Emma's full list of fund suggestions to access the better areas of the bond market in this week's magazine and the website. Last week saw the departure of a high-profile fund manager who runs one of our IC Top 100 funds. Um, Emma, which fund is this and why has the manager left? The manager in question is Sam Italy, who is a veteran biotech investor and he was the manager of Worldwide Healthcare. Okay, and why did Sam leave Worldwide Healthcare? Well, he resigned last week, um, a few days after harassment allegations made by former employees were published in the US press. So, you know, it's important to say he strongly denies these allegations, and the trust said that his resignation was part of a years-long succession planning. Okay, all right. Well, not just Hollywood and Westminster then. But um, morality of the situation aside, um, what does this mean for worldwide healthcare shareholders? Was Mr. Zali doing a good job of running the trust? And, you know, is his departure a blow in terms of returns? He was doing a very good job of running the trust. Um, it had delivered excellent performance in the 20 years that he'd been managing it. And for example, over the past five years, the trust has delivered a share price return of 217%. That's against 125% by the MSCI World Healthcare Index. Okay, so uh, a loss of um, what seems like a certainly a financially competent manager then. Um, who's going to run the trust now? And, um, you know, do the experts and the analysts think it can continue to perform well? And the good news is that the rest of the worldwide healthcare's management team remain in place. They include Sven Borjo and Trevor Polishak, um, and they've been managing the trust alongside um, Mr. Astley since 2013 and 2015, respectively. And the other thing is that this trust has you know, a huge amount of analyst support within the trust. So there are 24 investment professionals who are involved with coming up with investment ideas and also their decision-making process that goes into what goes into the fund. And for that reason, many of the analysts we spoke to were actually not that concerned about um, the fund manager's departure because they feel like it's such a good um, team effort that actually performance should continue. Okay, well, that's a bit of reassurance for shareholders. And um, yes, you can see um, Emma's article in this week's magazine for more details on the manager changes at Worldwide Healthcare. That brings us to the end of this week's show. We can read more on the Santa Valley, bonds and Worldwide Healthcare Trusts in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website 
We'll be back in the new year, but in the meantime, have a very happy Christmas. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.